Tonight, the passage that Miles just read, we're going to kind of keep our eyes peeled out for two big things and a few other uh, applications of those. The two big things are that every Christian is a participant in the spread of this kingdom we've been talking about and the spread of this good news that God loves and saves and changes sinners. Every Christian is a participant in that. And the second part is that we participate through our prayers, our lives, and our answers. Let me pray and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at this. Jesus, our gratitude to you is deep. We thank you that you are both lovely and that you love us. We thank you that this gospel, this good news, uh, is so much bigger than us. It's bigger than an idea that we have to work hard to remember and cheer ourselves up. It's bigger than our mood. It's bigger than our memory. And it holds us because you hold us. No matter what the day or the week has been like. So we thank you and we are so joyful and grateful that you are alive and reigning tonight. That you have conquered death, that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered shame and captivity, that you are one who shares good news with people who get hit by bad news every day. So one more time, would you come and speak good news? One more time, would you take pitiful words out of my mouth and somehow get them inside of our heads and inside of our hearts? Would you open up a door for the preaching of your word and the understanding of it in our hearts? We ask this with great hopes because this is your reputation. Amen. Well, I've noticed over the years in every different area and every different group I've ever been a part of that people tend to have a hard time feeling connected to a group, feeling a part of a group until they're given a role in that group, right? Until they're given some way to participate in it, to own a piece of the action, to have a position. This could be a team you've been a part of, debate club you've been a part of, your fraternity, your sorority. This could be RUF. It could be your church here in Athens. It could be your family. Hard to feel connected, hard to feel a part of it, hard to feel a part of the mission and the momentum of whatever community we're talking about until you have a piece of the action, a seat at the table, a role to play, a responsibility that you own, something that you contribute. You see this every year. Freshman, you're in the midst of this right now, right? A new city, a new town, new friend groups, new communities. And one of the hard dynamics of freshman year is what, is there anything for me to do? Or do I just sit here and show up and observe? Some of you are transfer students and it's even harder because it's the second campus you've had to do this at. Some of you, for whatever reason, um, socially or whatever, you you feel your wheels spinning. You feel like the group, whatever group we're talking about, has left you behind. The momentum has left. The mission is elusive and you feel aimless. Until we have a role, that's how we feel. This is not the main question that this passage is asking us tonight, but it's a direct implication of it. And I think it asks us this question. Have you ever felt this stuff in the church as a Christian? Have you ever felt what what I've just been describing in somewhere like RUF? I think that's a direct implied question that comes out of this passage. And the answer is Jesus through his apostle Paul saying, 
to you, if you're in Christ, you're in the game. You have a role. You do have a place. You do have an on-ramp to join the mission and the momentum of what Jesus is still doing tonight all around the world in every time zone right now. You have a place at the table. This is a family where, uh, you know, it's all hands on deck. This is a team where there are no bench warmers. This is a mission where everyone's, everyone's contribution is needed and used and honored. And this is what Paul is saying in the passage. And here's what's interesting. If you were here two and a half months ago, the first few weeks we were going through the book of Colossians, we were like really zooming in on what kind of people are these? Remember the kind of things Paul prayed for the Colossians? Remember that way back when? Do you know what you need? Uh, These were baby Christians. They were toddlers. They had just learned how to walk. They couldn't tie their spiritual shoelaces, so to speak. Uh, They were one step forward, two steps back kind of stage of growth and maturation. Paul was praying that they would be filled in the knowledge of Christ, implying they were not. He was praying that they'd be encouraged, implying that they were prone to discouragement. These were people who chased Jesus' shadows, right? These things that look like Jesus but are just air. These were people who were prone to take Jesus' supplements. He's not sufficient, so I gotta take some spiritual vitamins to compensate for where he lacks. These were the people, these are the people that Paul, the apostle, the apostle, he's responsible for the evangelism of, you know, most of modern-day Turkey and, and Europe. Paul is asking them to pray for him And not just in a polite, cliche way, like, hey, I'll pray for you. Can you pray for me? But a specific way. Hey, can you do me a favor? Will y'all pray for me that there would be a door opened to the gospel? And then even more humbling, I can't believe an apostle asks baby little Christians to pray that he would speak clearly and boldly as he ought to speak. There's a humbling thing to ask prayer for, right? That's like a multi-million dollar athlete praying that he might be able to make contact with the ball. It's like someone who speaks for a living asking or, or expressing weakness and saying, hey, ask God to help me get through this talk because I'm feeling pretty shaky about it. It's amazing that Paul, the apostle, is asking these wobbly-legged Christians these new little toddler Christians, to pray for him. And in doing so, he is giving them a role in the kingdom of God. He is giving them a role in the spread of this gospel, this announcement that God not only loves sinners, not only saves sinners, but changes sinners and lives with them forever, making them new creations completely. That's what Paul is doing with these people. He's giving them a role. He's giving them an on-ramp into the heart the beating heart of what God is doing in the world. To these little people, insignificant little Christians, Paul had never even met them in person. All he'd heard about is what Epaphras and others had told him. So he didn't didn't even have a chance to be personally impressed by them or kindred spirit or make a connection with some of them. He's simply going off what he's heard and he's holding out a hand and he's saying, hey, can you help? Can you hold this for me? Can you help me carry this? And really quickly, some of you are resonating with this because you feel like this, because you feel like I don't have a role or a way to contribute or a piece of the action to own because I'm a shaky-legged Christian. I don't feel mature. I don't know all the answers to this stuff. Half the week I have a 
don't have a clue half of what this guy's saying up front. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you're, maybe you're a new believer or, or you don't know where you are, but the dots are connecting. And you feel like this and it's easy to feel sidelined. It's easy to feel like you're riding the bench, that you have no participation, no way to get into the momentum and the mission of what God is doing in the world. You don't feel significant. You feel left behind. You feel spinning your wheels. You feel like, I feel less, less a part of the group, the community of brothers and sisters or RUF or your church because of these reasons. And you've got to see up front that Jesus through Paul looks at the end of the bench and he says, hey you, come on, get on the field. This is all hands on deck. There's no bench warmers in my family. And it honors them. And by the way, that changes the dynamic of the relationship. Has anyone in a position of authority ever let you have a piece of the action and you were just blown away by it? You're like, you asked me to do that? You asked me to do that? It changes the relationship with that person. You're like, they see me. I have no idea why they're asking me to do this thing. But I guess they have some idea. It changes the dynamic of the relationship. These people in Paul's relationship changes after that request. And it's not just that he is honoring them and saying they have a role in this. These people who feel like bench warmers have a role in the game, a significant role in the game to open doors for Paul that he might speak clearly as he ought. But remember where Paul is when he's writing this thing. You remember where he is? He's in jail. He's been in jail. He will remain in jail in Rome. He's writing this probably under candlelight in a musty, tiny Roman jail cell, having no clue what's going to happen to him if he's going to be executed, if he's going to be released, if he's just going to remain in prison, if he's going to be disappeared somewhere. This is where Paul is. Now, what's the significance of this? Paul's a human being. Don't you know how easy it is for his mind to feel sidelined? Right? The gospel is shot out like a cannon out of Jerusalem under the ends of the earth. Missionaries are going everywhere. Churches are being planted everywhere. People are converting in pretty sizable numbers. And here is the Apostle Paul, responsible for planting this and dozens of other churches, and he is sidelined in jail, circumstantially imprisoned. Not on the field, it seems, but off the field. And he's, saying, and he's praying, and it's interesting the, the language he uses, he's asking these Colossians to pray that a door might be opened, but he doesn't, he doesn't pray that a door might be opened of his prison cell. He says, pray, pray with me that a door might be opened to the word. So he's not praying necessarily for circumstantial release, but for a release of this good news. And again, some of you are resonating with this because circumstantially you're imprisoned. Depression has you sidelined, and every day you feel like I have nothing to contribute to anybody. There's no way God uses me in this season of my life. Or the doubts that have started to creep into my head for the first time in my relationship with God. There's no way he uses me. There's no way I'm that roommate that has an impact on the other roommates. There's no way I'm that girl in the sorority that leaves a wake of resurrection life behind her that others get caught up into. No way. Not after the mistake I made this fall. Not after the coasting. And you feel sidelined or you are sidelined by circumstances and our prayers often sound like open the door to the circumstances that I'm stuck in 
And God in his mercy often answers a, a, a kind of that prayer. He will open a door to the word, to, to good news radiating off of you, even in your silly weakness. Not silly because it's silly, but silly because you're almost to the point of laughing. This is unbelievable that this is happening to me. What's next? Paul's life is circumstantially sidelined, and yet, two, just shy of 2,000 years later, we're sitting in a brick building in Athens, Georgia, the furthest ends of the earth from the Middle East, from the Middle East hearing this word written under, under candlelight in a tiny jail cell, smuggled out by a friend, copied, disseminated by the early church, landing in your Bibles on your seat tonight. You are hearing this gospel, this word, because Jesus answered Paul's prayer. Jesus answered the prayers of these dinky little Colossians to let the word out, to ripple on the furthest shores, and you're the beneficiary of it because Jesus heard those prayers, and he hears yours too when you feel sidelined by circumstances. So to summarize that first thing, everybody in Christ is in the game. You will have to believe this by faith. You will have to listen to Jesus tell you this is true and you'll have to say because he says it's true, I believe it's true because your circumstances will not preach this to you oftentimes. Your emotions won't. Your life won't sometimes. He will have to tell you, believe me. I regularly work through weak people. My power is made perfect in weakness. He calls us clay jars, fragile, brittle, ordinary little people that contain this infinite galactic gospel that shoots out and transforms everything. And he does it so that God might be the one that people talk about thousands of years from now, not just you. He might leave us in the circumstances, but let unleash his word through us in the circumstances that we are caught in. If you're in Jesus, you're in the game. And if you're not in Jesus, you're not in the game. But Jesus is pursuing you through the game, right? This is him calling his people to unleash the word, the good news, that outsiders are brought inside in this family, that God is real, that he's gracious, that he's alive, that he is love, that he takes sin seriously, but he also forgives sin. So if you're not in Jesus, you are not in the game, but in a sense, you're a focus of the game. You're an object of the game. God has set his church on you because his church is filled with yous, people like you, who one year were not on the team and now are on the team, who once were aliens far off and have now been brought near. That's what the family of God is, outsiders who have become insiders by nothing owing to themselves, only owing to the mercy and kindness of God. So you might be resonating with this, you might not, I don't know, but that's the first point. If you're in Jesus, you're in the game, but the question now comes up, well then what's my role? Ben said I've got a position, a role, a piece of the action, there's an on-ramp. Well, what does it look like to drive my car onto this interstate and to get into the fast lane and the mission, the momentum of what the church is doing in the world, what Jesus is doing through the church? What is your position? Well, that's the second and last thing we talk about is Paul says the primary positions or ways that you participate in what Jesus is doing in the world is through prayers, through our prayers, through our relationships, through our answers. Those are the three things if you're following along in the passage that you'll see popping up, your prayers, your relationships, and your answers. And he says we pray steadfastly 
watchfully and thankfully. But why is the Apostle Paul asking for prayer to begin with? Think about that. Isn't he supposed to be the strategy guru? Doesn't he have a master plan? He's planted about a dozen churches by this point. He's traveled all the way from you know, Israel all the way up through Turkey and now he's in Italy. And he has plans to go to Spain. Why is he praying to these? He's gathering anybody who will listen, anybody who will take him up on the offer to do a favor for him and pray that doors will be busted down. Why is he praying? Why do you need to be praying for these things? That doors in Athens and UGA will be busted down by Jesus. Why pray that prayer? Because doors exist. Doors that keep the gospel out. Doors that keep the word of God out. Doors that keep even the possibility that there is a God or that he's like this or that the Bible is true. Battle-hardened castle, four feet thick doors exist and only God can move them. We can't ram them open. We can't kind of set up a ladder and get over the wall. These are impenetrable fortresses. That is what sin has done to the human heart. Romans 1, we are truth suppressors. Evidence of God is literally raining down all around us. We see it, we suppress it. We don't want it to be true because I don't want there to be another sovereign. There are big, thick doors keeping each of us from ever hearing good news in a way that lands in our hearts and doesn't just vibrate our eardrums and that's it. And for, for you to get to where you are, if you're alive, if your heart's been softened, you have eyes to see, ears to hear, you love the Lord, he's lovely to you. The reason that happened is God drove a Sherman tank through a castle door that was blocking him, that was erected by you, that was erected by our moment, that was erected by all kinds of other circumstances, life, victimization, whatever else. Doors exist and so doors must come down for these things to happen. This is one way of Paul saying, don't be surprised, don't be caught off guard when you talk to your friends and it's, you're like, man, this is a thick door. This is like a, one of those castle-like, whatever they call those drawbridge things, man, there's nothing getting in or getting out of here. Well, there's no reason to be surprised. Paul says that's the way it is, that's what sin does to us. And we're to look at that door and pray that one day it would crumble before our eyes and fall right down. And prayer is the way that we participate in the destruction of those doors. And these doors do not fall down automatically. And they do not fall down because we have got the right strategy or the right formula or we read the right books or we have the right charismatic leader. These are doors that are only supernaturally removed. They're that thick. They're that impossibly stubborn. So Paul prays because these barriers are real. And Paul prays because he's not Jesus. Prayer is an admission that you're not Jesus. Prayer to Jesus is an admission that you're not the Messiah, that you're not omnipotent like he is. Prayer is an appeal to one who is. I feel this every week I get up. Any preacher does, any teacher does. Uh, there is no way I could ever study enough, learn enough, practice enough to be eloquent enough that my words would somehow get inside of these fortresses of unbelief and doubt. 
Uh, There is no community group leader in this room or in RUF who gets up on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday night and teaches the lesson or leads the conversation that can be compelling enough to break these barriers down. You can't sit across the table with your friend or your mom or your dad over Thanksgiving and talk them into this stuff. These barriers are real and we are not Jesus. But did you know that Jesus can and did you know that he does? And did you know that he loves to? And did you know that he does it every hour, every day, every year with impossible people in impossible situations? He busts these doors down all the time. And this is the secret. Paul says one of the ways we're to pray is thankfully. This is the secret to thankful, gratitude-drenched prayers is when you more and more become convinced and aware of what God's heart is for this world what his intentions are for this world, for your friends, for UGA. You'll find your voice leaping out of your chest. You'll find your prayers running to Jesus because you'll know that he loves to bust doors down. He loves to dispel seemingly convincing plausible arguments. He loves to turn the lights on for blind people. He loves to heal the paralyzed. He loves to reconcile the enemy. And the more we tune into this and get his heart and what he is like, the more we pray. There's an old uh, uh, poet in the Civil War, Annie Johnston Flint. She wrote a poem called He Giveth More Grace. The end of that poem goes like this. When our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit, His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. You believe that, you're gonna find yourself praying a lot more that this Jesus will break down those doors. And you'll start having this other phenomenon pop up. You'll start watching for Jesus to show up and do the very things we've asked him to do. You know, I was thinking about this. Um, When I call the cable guy to come and fix our cable or our internet, I watch for him or her, and I wait for them. When I call upon God to do these things, I often don't watch for him or wait for him. I say a prayer and I forget about it. What does that show you? What does that reveal about my understanding of his character and his heart? I don't expect him to show up. I'm not waiting for him. I'm not expecting him to come. I'm not expecting him to be one who loves to give and give and give and give. And so I don't wait on him. Do you watch for Jesus in your day-to-day life on campus with your friends, your roommates, your hallmates, your mom, your dad, yourself? Do you wait on him? Do you sit around and wait for him to come in whatever way he, he approaches you? Or do we just have a deep expectation that he's not coming, but I guess I'm still supposed to pray? Paul calls us to be watchful in our prayer because we expect God to redeem and to grant the grace of repentance, which is a gift, to give to us, to our friends, the gift of faith, which is a gift, to give the gift of conviction of sin, which is a gift. It's not something you could fabricate. To give the gift of revival, which is a gift, which he does give, happened in my fraternity right up there. 
10% of our chapter radically converted my last year in there and are still Christians 15 years later. We pray these prayers. We are watchful in them when we begin to see him acting. And he surrounded us with his action. But we need each other, right? We need Paul to say, hey, are you waiting? He said he's coming. Are you waiting? Are you watching? And we need each other to remind each other how he's at work. This is why we tell each other stories of God, how God's at work in our lives. I hope in a couple of weeks to have a few of the graduating seniors share a little bit about what God's done here, but it happens in community groups. It happens at freshman fellowship and one-on-ones. We want to know your story, not to get your biography down, but we're desperate to see Jesus on the move and at work in the real nitty-gritty details of everyday life. Why? Because it encourages me that he's at work in mine too. And hearing what he's doing in you sends me on a hunt to go look what he's doing in me. That's what watchful praying does. I want to say one more thing about that before we move on. Have you considered the possibility that you are the only human voice that will ever utter prayers for some of your friends? They were not raised in a religious house. They were not raised by Christian parents. Their mom has never prayed for them. Their dad has never prayed for them. Grandma, grandpa. They have no cousins who've prayed for them. There are no friends who have prayed for them. There's no professors or teachers or pastors who've ever prayed for them. But there's you. Who God has strategically positioned to be one who stands by them and walks through life with them, strategically located, interceding for them. Peppering him with their name. Saying, I see the door. Jesus, break it down. You will be the only voice that will ever reach God's ears in some of your friends' lives. We have the opportunity, we get to participate in the kingdom of God by giving voice to those names and those situations. And lastly, he says, we pray steadfastly. In a sense that um, steadfast prayer is kind of a continual. Prayer is less of an event and more of a posture more of a lifestyle, more of an ongoing conversation that kind of gets picked up on and off throughout the day. Like we don't, so checking social media is not an event for us. It's six o'clock. I'll go through Instagram and Snapchat. It's throughout our whole day. It's sporadic. Prayer is too. And steadfast prayer, Paul is kind of saying this to use a, a football term. Prayer is your running game. Not your desperate trick play, Hail Mary pass because nothing else is working. Let's go dust off that play because nothing else we've tried is working, so let's go pray. He's saying, no, prayer is Holyfield running the ball one or two or three yards at a time, slowly getting down the field to the end zone. It's your bread and butter. It's the short little pass of the handoff. That's what prayer in the kingdom of God is like, not the event because nothing else is working. I guess we'll have to pray now, but it's our running game. So, Paul also says it's not just our prayers, but it's the way we live our lives. It's distinct lives, lives that are seasoned with salt, words that are gracious. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity or making the most of the time, he says. What does that mean? I came across this article about a year ago in Vanity Fair, and it was titled, When the Most Interesting Man in the World Meets That Guy on the Dos Equis Commercials. Remember the most interesting man in the world? Stay thirsty, my friends. Well, it turns out he had met President Obama 
at some campaign event back during one of Obama's uh, campaigns, and Obama was fascinated by this guy, like loved talking to him. Apparently the guy is really interesting, has a fascinating life. Um, and so for his 50th birthday party, uh, some of Obama's best friends basically invited some secret guests to Camp David to join for the weekend. And, uh, and he, Obama didn't know who was going to be there. Well, they invited this guy, the most interesting man in the world. Everyone in the universe knew this guy. Um, I pulled up a few. You remember the commercials. Um, he, his personality is so magnetic, he's unable to carry credit cards. He once had an awkward moment just to see how it feels. The police interrogate him just to get to know him. The most interesting man in the world is the whole 10-year ad campaign. And it got me thinking, a lot of people would say, maybe at that moment, a few years ago in our country, Obama might be the most interesting man in the world, but he's fascinated by this dude with the white beard on the Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world. Which really begs the question, what does it mean to be interesting? I don't know. Here's my guess. What it means to be interesting is you're a person for whom the math doesn't add up. You're enigmatic. People can't figure you out. You don't make sense at some level. Just natural, normal explanations don't explain why you are the way you are. It's the really, really rich guy who's really down-to-earth and approachable, and no one knew he had money until they went home for that road trip. It's the really, really attractive person who's friends with everybody and isn't caught up in their, you're like, I don't get you. Or the really, really smart person who you never know. When you hear where they got into grad school, you're like, what? You? That's interesting. And Paul is saying the Christian in the world is inherently an interesting person. Why? I'll have to direct you to a month's worth of podcasts. Interesting people are people who feel every fiber of their being feels like doing something, feels like it's good, feels like it's part of me, and they resist the temptation because they know this is not part of who I really am. This is not part of future me. It doesn't belong. That's interesting. Denying what feels natural and normal to you. What's interesting is cool people who hang out with people who are decidedly not cool. What's interesting to the world is smart people who have answers for why they believe every word that God has given us in Scripture. That's interesting. And interesting can cut both ways. It can be bad interesting, like I love when people describe how their weekend was. It was interesting. You're like, well, that's a bad interesting. But there's also good interesting. And you being interesting in the world because you are a new creation in the midst of an old, decaying, dying world will either be good interesting or bad interesting. Some friends will say, that girl's interesting, and they don't mean it in a good way. They'll ridicule you, mock you. She's, she doesn't think. She's closed-minded. She's judgmental. She's a Christian. She believes in all this crazy stuff and doesn't believe in all this stuff. Uh, that's, that's the bad interesting, but there's also the good interesting where you've looked at one of these people, one of your friends, and you're like, something's not adding up. Why are they so down to earth, but they also see, seem so free from earth? free from all the junk that tangles us all up. There's just something about them. That's interesting too. Jesus simply calls you to be who you are, to lean into who you are, who he has made you. And he says you will be interesting. And people will ask you questions. This is what Paul says. He says, be prepared with an answer for when you're asked questions, which presumes Christians are getting asked questions by other people. And maybe it's a a question coming out of a bad interest. What's wrong with you? Why don't you believe this stuff? 
Or it could be a, a good question. What's up with you? Why are you this way? What made you this way? Why are you, you're not, you're like really gracious with people who disagree with you, but you know what you believe. You're not like, well, maybe you're right, I don't know. You do you and I'll do me. Like, I don't get that. So the things Paul says about interesting uh, people in the world. He says our words are to be seasoned with salt. Jesus says we are to be salty. He says our words are to be gracious so that we might know how we ought to answer each person. And the question gets raised, is your life raising questions that your words answer? Is the way you live provoking questions amongst your friends or your family that your study, that your understanding of the Bible, hopefully that your your increasing understanding of theology is able to answer. I want to get really practical before we finish. I already felt convicted in this passage. Okay, I I don't pray much. I want to pray more, right? I want to, if I wait for the cable guy, I want to wait on God. I want to watch for him. But then when I think about us as a group, I get a little bit more convicted when I think about, do we have answers for the questions our friends are asking? William Wilberforce, uh, instrumental in the abolishment of slavery in England, uh, said, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it off the, he says, Christianity has been successfully attacked and marginalized because those who professed belief were unable to defend the faith from attack, even though its attackers' arguments were deeply flawed. Do you consider it an act of love to your friends to study up and to know why you believe what you believe? Do you see it as an act of pure service and love and kindness to your friends to know what the Bible teaches, to know how the dots connect, to know how the faith is defended, to know why Christians aren't anti-science but we're also anti-bowing at the altar of science? Do you have helpful answers to your friends that are interesting, that hold water, that have intellectual credibility. Paul's not saying we need to become new people. He's saying, do you see that as an act of love or do you invest no energy, no effort, no intellectual rigor in the love of your friends? At a school like UGA, my friends, you must set your mind to this. Some of you must share what you know. Some of you must start reading books. Some of you need to show up and we need to talk about these things. It is not loving to our friends to live an entire life without ever bothering to learn an answer to their questions. That is not love. That is not helping. That is not opening a door. And the ironic thing in this passage is that we pray for Jesus to open doors and guess what? Who does he send through the door? Not just his word in some disembodied abstract way like here's a magazine, slip that under the door. When we pray for barriers to be broken down, doors to crash down, and the word to enter in like fresh air into a musty basement, who does he send? Often you, or me, or one of the people on the seats next to you. That's who he sends with his word. Paul says, pray that, the word, that there might be an opening for the door, that I may teach it as I ought, clearly and boldly. So Jesus is not just knocking doors down, and somehow this gas of the word of God or the gospel just flows into there. He sends you into there, and the question is, what kind of person do people want to let into their house? What kind of person do people want to open the door for? 
someone who's gracious with their struggles, gracious with their questions, gracious with their doubts, patient with them, whose words are helpful and informed, where you have substance and content to offer them, not just, yeah, that's a good question. Who's coming through the door when Jesus does break the door down? It could be a gospel-saturated, grace-giving, question-answering, mind-illuminating, hand-holding, friend-carrying person. And that is a part of the gospel too, that Jesus has not just saved you, he's made you new. He has freed you, he's given you a whole new horizon of possibilities, of potential, and this is part of it. Friends, if you're in Christ, you're on the field, and this is your position, and this is where he calls you to act, and if you're not in Christ, you're not on the field, but don't you hear his people coming for you? Not to tackle you and jam something down, to th- down your throat, but to be gracious with you, to help you, to walk with you as you get your questions answered and as they give you better questions to ask. This Jesus loves to give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love to give. We pray in UGA, through RUF, in our community groups, in our conversations, in this group, we pray that you will bust doors down. And we pray that we would become people who are worthy to be let into other people's lives, who are trusted, who have earned trust, who are helpful friends. We pray that you would do this work because you love this city, you love this campus, and you love us. We ask this in your name, amen.